6640. 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Now, there are three participles in here, seeing, that is the witnesses, and laying aside the baggage of Judaism. Mary, he's talking about Jewish believers here, laying aside the baggage, they're threatened, the the thing that they were fighting was they were thinking of going back to Judaism because they're tired of being persecuted as Christians. So they were entertaining the idea of going back because uh, they were getting, encountering a lot of problems. They're going to, he says, seeing that we're encompassed by the witnesses, laying aside two things, the baggage of Judaism that they were still trying to, thinking of carrying, and the sin of apostasy. And that was back in chapter 10 where that focused on. And looking then, we're going to see in the next verse, picks up the third of the three participles, looking unto Jesus, keeping an eye on Him, looking unto Jesus. Aphorao, they look to, to look away from all distractions, the word looking here in the Greek is very, see, it's Greek is very specific. Not just looking, but looking in the sense that you're ignoring distractions. You're focusing. You could almost more, focusing on uh, uh, Jesus would be another way to translate it. To whom? Jesus, the author and finisher of, of our faith. And why? Because he is the perfect example of obedience and patient endurance. Anytime you have some, need some perspectives, you get it by focusing on Jesus Christ. The author and finisher, Teleosterson, is the one who carries it through completion. What he starts, he finishes. You know what's exciting about that word? When God, when God has started a good work in you, right? The very fact that you're here right now, listening to all this, means that God has started something in your life. You know what the good news about that is? What God starts, he finishes. He finishes. That's exciting. That's exciting. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against system. For consider here, the word consider, analogazonomai, which is the word from which analog comes from, analogy, if you will, means to think over, consider, ponder. Consider him. Think it over. Every once in a while, we need to stand back and think through what Christ went through for you and me. And I don't mean just the cross. That's the obvious capstone. Read Psalm 69 and look through there and hear the sobs of a small boy raised in Nazareth in which the drunkards make up songs about him down at the tavern because he's considered illegitimate. His mother, he's made an alien to his mother's children. What's all that talking about in Psalm 69? Section in there. You begin to realize those were not happy days. He and his mother, but he endured the stigma of being illegitimate for 30 years. Why? So that you and I would have clear title to be called a son of God. Wow. When you think of his suffering, it's 30 years, not three and a half. 
It's not just the overnight in Gethsemane and the cross. I'm not demeaning that. Don't misunderstand me. In fact, I would make the case that what he really suffered far beyond the physical things that are communicated to us. Anyway, as you think about that, the Word of God will keep you from being wearied. You ever get tired? We all will be. There's a, t there's a point going to be when studying the Bible and all this stuff gets to be kind of a drag. I hate to admit it, but there'll be times that you you'll be down. What's the remedy? Get in the Word. The, if you really get in the Word, that will keep you from being wearied as you begin to realize what has gone on before and what is going on right now on your behalf and what's coming on your behalf. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood. Now, it's referring primarily to these guys because in, within two years, his listeners are going to, the Jews are going to be killed. He's trying to tell them, don't go back to Judaism. That's over. Leviticus is over. The law is over. Don't go back to that. And you're going to get a surprise when we get to chapter 13, and I'll give you the postscript. Antagonize Zanomai. It's a to struggle, fight. The English word agony and antagonism comes out of that same Greek root. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and, and scourgeth every son he receiveth. The writer here is quoting, that sounds familiar to you, because that's Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. And he quotes that passage for, to make two points. That God disciplines those whom he loves. If your father really loves you, he'll take you to the woodshed when he should. If he doesn't do that, it's tragically something where he's shortchanging you. God disciplines those whom he loves. He won't bother if he doesn't love you. God proves that, uh, uh, excuse me, the writer here, I meant to say, proves that discipline, disciplinary action, is a sign of sonship. If you're not his son, he won't bother. He's, what he's trying to say is that passage implies that God is acting as a dutiful parent, loving you and seeing to it that you grow. He won't do that if you're not his son. That's really the point he's trying to make here. And the word my son there is huios in the Greek, which means also of an adult son. It's a sonship thing, not a child kind of thing. We think of a son being a child, and that's the only one. No, it goes a little further than that. But the progression that he's going to make here is from a lesser degree to a greater degree, even death. Because he's going to compare to a father and a son, but our father is even, if that's true of, of our, heavenly, our earthly father, it's even more true of our heavenly father. That's the point he's going to make here. God's children do suffer. Has anyone noticed that? Anyone have any doubts on that particular point, right? Okay. Well, the Scripture all through, and I just picked a few here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivereth him out of all. Job, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. John 16, 33. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Don't confuse that with the great tribulation. That's a specific period of time with some specific issues. No, in general, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Why? Who's the God of this world? And Satan promised it to Christ, and Christ promised it to those that follow Christ. 
In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Christ says. This is John's quoting Christ, of course. I have overcome the world. Praise God for that. Never lose sight of that. Never lose sight of that. Paul writes his final letter to Timothy, and he says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer prosecution. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's reality. Now, why? Why do Christians suffer? J. Vernon McGee lists seven reasons. Because of our own stupidity and our own sin. All right. All right. I'll subscribe to that. My hand is up. For taking a stand for truth and righteousness. I don't get persecuted enough for that. I don't do it enough of that. I suppose if I did it more, I would have more persecution. But that's a legitimate one. We suffer for sin in our lives. Is there some continuing sin in our life? That will bring down some, some trouble. For our past sins is another way of saying the same thing. In some cases, we will have persecution for some lofty purpose that God knows that hasn't revealed to us, at least not yet. And there's examples of that, but you can look at the book of Job as one example. Job never had the benefit of the conversation that opens the book, conversation of Satan and God. We as readers have that benefit. Job didn't. Tough stuff. Some get suffered for their faith. And some for discipline. These happen to be the seven that J. Vernon McGee lists. From my perspective, they sort of they sort of overlay up on the one hand, and yet the other, on the other hand, they're not as uh, uh, definitive, d d d d d distinctive as they might be. There's another list that I tend to lean to by uh, that's in Hal Lindsey's book, Combat Faith. Why do Christians have trial? Well, for one reason, to, to glorify God. Think of Daniel chapter three, fiery furnace, and all of that. Another one is to discipline for known sin. Most of what we heard in J. Vernon McGee's list is pretty much comes under that kind of a category. Third one is to prevent us from falling into sin. Sometimes we have a trial to keep us from something more serious. You follow me? And there's examples of that. Peter talks about it in his first letter, chapter 4. Another one that I think is a terrific one to keep us from pride. Pride. Where there's contention, there's pride, the book of Proverbs tells us. That's interesting. That's one reason I don't participate in debates. Because I tend to see most of them as pride-driven. I'm not disparaging them, but I don't spend my time on that because the people there aren't going to change their mind, even if you win the debate. Now, to keep us from pride. Paul was kept by pride by what he called a thorn in the flesh back in 2 Corinthians 12. And most of us presume that it might have something to do with his eyes. That's a speculation that comes to focus in Galatians chapter 4. And there's some hints that that was a problem he had. Another reason is to build our faith. One reason we have trials is that we come out of that trials with strength and faith. And uh, 1 Peter 1 talks about that. You can look at Genesis 22 and the offering of Isaac is something like that. Another, one is to, another way of saying a similar thing is to cause growth in us. That's what Romans 5 deals with. Another one is to teach us obedience and discipline. That's like an athlete or a, a team member of a competitive sport. There's a discipline aspect of that, an obedience part of that, a, res a predictable response aspect of that. But another reason we can have trials is that we might comfort others. That we might comfort others. Is there some particular trial you're going through? That might be God training you 
to be useful to somebody else that would be going through the same thing a year or two from now? Are you going through a bankruptcy? Maybe so that you can minister to someone that's going through bankruptcy next year. Or someone that's lost a child. Or someone's had an unusual form of medical problem. You can fill in the blank. One reason you might be experiencing that is to equip you and to tune you and to call you to ministering to others that have that, 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 that could benefit from your experience. Another reason Christians have trials is to prove the reality of Christ in us. I like this one because I think it fits the writer to Hebrews because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And the witnesses there were historical ones. Our witnesses are contemporary ones. And of course, the other one that's a little spooky but interesting, for testimony to the angels. It's interesting in several places, not only in Job, but in Ephesians and 1 Peter, there's the, the inference we draw from the passages that the angels seem to be watching us to understand God's will. God seems to communicate to the angels in small pieces, and they put the pieces together by watching us, you see. Interesting. And that's the 1 Peter 1.12 is perhaps the key one there. In any case, James chapter 1 deals with all of this right out, right out the get-go. Okay, let's get back to Hebrews 12. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteth not? So he's drawing a parallel here, okay? And the very fact that they're chastening by God, that means they are God's sons or he wouldn't bother. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. In other words, if you're just getting things that everybody else does, then that does, that, there's no evidence of sonship there, is there? That's, <laughs> that's, the writer here is pretty direct, doesn't miss his words, right? Pewter and chastening. And the word there is padia, which is two different things. The moral training and education of children it refers to, but it also alludes to whatever in adults also cultivates the soul. So this is even like the graduate school of childhood, so to speak. Correcting mistakes, curbing passions. That's what Bathsheba seems to do in Proverbs 31, speaking with her intimate name of Solomon, Lemuel. She is trying to counsel him on behavior that she sees in him that she didn't, she didn't, uh, she, she, it's sort of warning him that she's seeing in him some of the characteristics of his father David that needs to, needed to be cautioned. In any case, though, they all have become partakers of sonship as evidenced by this chastisement. The key point of this, this part of the passage is to, to take joy in the chastisement because as a minimum, it confirms that you are his son. And that's exciting news to, to, to hang on to. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father's spirits and live? He's contrasting two fathers. See, our human father, he was temporary. And he doesn't say this, but it's implied here is that our own father probably made mistakes. There may have been time that we were chastised in anger. A good father doesn't allow that to happen. He'll, he'll punish, but he, he, he doesn't lose his temper. Sometimes human, heavenly fa uh, humanly fathers make mistakes. We all have. Our fathers have and we have. So they're not perfect. However, the Father of spirits, our Heavenly Father, 
is, is, uh, never makes mistakes. And it's always for our personal profit. That doesn't make it fun, but it gives us it, it is a form of comfort knowing that it's for our good. For they verily for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure. That's me that's speaking of the humanly father. They do it as best they knew. But he, our prophet, for our prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's why he's doing it. That we might be partakers, partakers of his holiness. That's the ultimate goal. Spiritual maturity. That's the goal of this epistle. Not salvation. It takes for granted that you're saved, you've accepted Christ, or none of this is meaningful. No, no. They've accepted Christ, but they're not, his writers were, were stymied. They're not moving forward to spiritual maturity. J. Vernon McGee makes the colorful example when you're in freezing weather. You better keep moving. If you stop, you could be dead, right? Perhaps a clumsy analogy, but interesting one. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. How many have noticed that? Okay. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, that trial you're going through will bear fruit. And you can take comfort by confidence in that truth, or fruit. Then he has this interesting thing. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, and, but let it rather be healed. Again, wherefore, connects this thought with what just went on beforehand. And what this is basically saying is the stronger members should assist the weaker ones. Lift up the hands which hang down. Do you remember Moses? As long as he held up his hands, the battle went well. As his hands get tired, they start losing. So, so Aaron and her, the two, two buddies, held his hands up. So as long as his hands stood up, the battle, <laughs> they won. There's a lesson there, very practical lesson. And that's the illusion that the writer here is assuming comes to mind by the readers. The famous event of holding up Moses' hands. And the feeble knees, same kind of thing. Not to, not to, not to, 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 uh, to uh, weak. And then all that, Exodus 17 is on that. Make straight paths for your feet. Why straight paths? So you won't keep going in circles. Okay? <laughs> A very simple explanation, expositionally. Make straight paths for your feet. Why? So you won't keep going in circles. Lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but rather that it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Looking diligently. Looking diligently. The word there, interestingly enough, is episcopeo, which the word itself means to look upon, inspect, or oversee, and the overseeing thing has caused that Greek word to be adopted in the, the idea of a episcopal in an English word, episcopal, to care for, to look after and care for. But here it really means to inspect, looking diligently, um, lest any man fail of grace, lest any root of bitterness spring up. 
Now, that's a, a root of bitterness. That's a source of divisions. The bitterness has roots, murmuring, and so forth. The same word speaks of gall and wormwood in Deuteronomy 29, 18. The root of bitterness. My wife pointed out to me something in her, in her earlier books that has always stuck with me as a profound insight. And that is the most, when you have hurts from someone, the most dangerous ones are the justified ones. That's a strange insight I got from her. Boy, is she right on. If you have a hurt that isn't really justified, you can deal with that. It bothers you, but okay. It's when the hurt is justified, you can't let go of it. And you become in bondage to it. You see, they're the ones that are the most crucial, crucial to leave at the cross. Give it to the Lord. They're the toughest one to let go because they're justified. Man, do you know what he did to me? Don't care. The more justified it is, the more urgent it is that you get freed from the bondage of that. Interesting. That's one of the things that makes her book so, so valuable, so practical. Lest any root of bitterness... Boy, I bet you every one of you could jot down a few people you've met in your life that are destroying themselves and their lives because they nurse a root of bitterness. And it's not the person that caused the bitterness that's destroying them. It's they're destroying their, themselves by not letting go of that. Boy. And if you want to know the practical aspects of letting go of that, take a look at Nan's books, The Way of Agape. And be transformed. They, they lay it out skillfully, practically, in real terms. The most dangerous hurts are the justified ones. Boy, let me tell you what he did to me. Boy, 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 boy. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now we're shifting into getting right now. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person. The word is pornos, which technically means a prostitute, but Esau wasn't that's not the thought here. Fornication here, the illusion here is a spiritual fornication. What is that? Turning from God to the things of the flesh. Rather than his birthright and things that he should have held dear, he sold it for a mess of porridge. A mess of porridge. And the word profane, by the way, comes from two Latin words. In the English word profane, comes from two Latin words. Pro, meaning either before it or against it. And phanum, which means the temple. That's what the word profane, that's where the word profane comes from. And we get the same flavor in our, our use of it. And bebelos, which means lawful to be trodden. He demeaned spiritual things. And that whole, you know the story about Esau and, and how he uh, sold his birthright for a mess of porridge. The main point was that he demeaned it. He didn't take it seriously. That was the sin. Now, the reason this is coming up in this epistle is his readers, the writer's readers, are also likely to be victims of their own irreversible decision, which will cut off blessings. Esau made a decision that was irreversible. And that cut him off. And he's drawing deliberately a parallel here that the readers will understand because they all know the story of Esau who sold his birthright for a, 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 you know, a cup of porridge. 
Now, firstborn status, let's understand firstborn status. Being the firstborn generally meant you were the head, headship of the family, and you're also the pre- high priest of the family. They're two separate ideas, but they're together. And it also meant you got a double portion of the inheritance. So that was a big deal. Big deal. In Genesis 27, we have the whole story about how Esau forfeited his birthright. He didn't just get cheated out of it by uh, Jacob. He was, but that wasn't the point. He had already sold it to him for a cup of soup. So the firstborn, that's not the only case where it's been bypassed. Cain was bypassed by Seth. He blew it, didn't he? Japheth by Shem. Ishmael by Isaac, Esau by Jacob, Reuben by two, Judah and Joseph, because he, he, he messed up and his birthright was split up a little bit. We'll talk about that. Aaron was, not, was, the, was the firstborn. Moses wasn't, but Moses gets picked. And all of David's brothers, he, he, he was the youngest. He, he bypassed the whole bunch. So the firstborn which is a, a title, yes, he's born first, but it's a, it's a title of stature. And it can be bypassed by someone who isn't born first. Remember Reuben? He was the natural heir. He was disavowed because of his illicit relationship with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, both of them blew it. They would have been next. But because of their crime at Shechem, they blew it. Judah was the next in line. Then Joseph. Joseph got a double portion. And he was favored as firstborn from Rachel, Jacob's favorite. And of course, they get split up between Ephraim and Manasseh, his two, his, the two, his two sons, J- uh, um, Jacob's grandsons get adopted. And that's why you have 13 tribes to choose from when you need 12. Okay, we're down to verse 17. For ye know how that afterward, speaking of Esau, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it, carefully with tears. You remember, he desired to, when it came to the doing, he wanted it badly. It was too late then, wasn't it? It was too late. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.